0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart.
1: Good morning. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. This week was Iowa. Next week is New Hampshire. And Washington Post national political reporter Maeve Reston is in the Granite State covering the first primary in the run for the Republican presidential nomination. Maeve. Welcome to First Look. There you are, <laughs> welcome back to First <laughs> Look.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay, so you're there. So tell us, what's the vibe in New Hampshire four days before the primary?
2: So it's interesting, I was here uh, you know, a week before Iowa, Knock going out, shadowing uh, people, knocking doors, etc. And it felt a very tight. Um, you know, you would go to one door with door knockers and they would clearly be Trump supporters. And then the next door, they were thinking about Haley or DeSantis. But it now feels um, as though a lot of these attacks on Nikki Haley that the Trump campaign is leveling um, are really having an impact. You know, you know how these conversations go uh, when you're out talking to voters and you start hearing the ad messages coming right back um, <laughs> that mm-hmm. they are hearing uh, when they talk about their concerns. there's a lot of um, there's a lot of concern among uh, Republican voters here who were, who are thinking about her? Who are ready to move on from Trump? Um, who are now uh, really sort of hesitating because of these attacks that you know she's taking money from uh, big Democratic donors? Um, all of Trump's attacks in his rallies here. I was with him in Portsmouth, um, where he is saying that she would be just like Joe Biden and you know a pawn of Democrats, Wall Street donors. Um, that's clearly starting to have an impact. And it's important to remember that she was virtually. Unchallenged here in New Hampshire. Huge advertising budget in December, early January. And then the Trump campaign spending uh, shot up and his allied groups and they really started going after her. So, as one aide said to me, like no one had laid a glove on her uh, really before um, this contest. And so we're starting to see the effects of that now.
1: So, you know, and so given what you just said, uh, Maeve, I'm just wondering. Because you, you you know, you have um, Nikki Haley out there who's been, as you wrote in in your story, sharpening her attacks on Trump. Uh, at the time you mm-hmm. wrote that story, she was going after him over his age um, and looping yes. in President Biden uh, in that right. attack. I believe yesterday she was a little more forceful in talking about the the contrast with Donald Trump. I'm just wondering, do New Hampshire voters want her to fight back? Would they, would they, would New Hampshire voters actually like to see her attack Donald Trump on some very real issues that are bigger than his, bigger than his
2: age? Well, so what you're seeing with that is uh, this very complicated tightrope that she is walking here because in order to match uh, Donald Trump's coalition here to to make the math work for victory she has got to pull in some of those soft trump supporters who still like his record still like him just think that somebody else would have a better shot against biden she's got to get more of those people in order to win and at the same time she's trying to draw in all of these independents in new hampshire who are the biggest cohort of voters here almost 40 percent many of whom are left-leaning and want to hear her just, like, pummel Trump. And that's what gets them excited. Like, a lot of them are, you know, anti-Trump. And so it's this very tricky balance for her. And I think that's why she's, you know, trying to lump Biden into the age comparison and continue to make this generational argument because she's she's really trying not to alienate those GOP voters who like Trump um, who don't want to hear that.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. And so as you're, as you're there, before we talk about the other person who, the, the third person who's in the race, um, as you're there, there in New Hampshire, does it feel like New Hampshire is going to be the blowout for Trump the way Iowa was the blowout for Trump?
2: I, you know, I, it, I don't, I don't know that It's a blowout. Uh, But when you look at his numbers, the way the one operative was explaining him to me in New Hampshire is that he's been like a goalpost over the last uh, year. His support really stays steady right in that like 45% range through all of his controversies. His people stay with him. And the problem for Nikki Haley here was that she really needed Vivek Ramaswamy to stay in the race and not... Mm. Uh, free up those votes and, you know, let them, because once those votes go to Trump, he's getting really pretty close to 50%. And so I I think it felt a lot tighter uh, last week, but we are starting to see some polls where she is dropping. So maybe not the blowout that he was looking for, but it's getting harder and harder to imagine um, how Haley can actually beat him here.
1: Um, So you you know who's not getting 50%? Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, I can't remember yeah. which poll it was that came out this week, but it showed Donald Trump, I believe, at fifty at fifty percent or fifty-one percent. Nikki Haley um, second, but not yeah. you know too far. And then Ron DeSantis polling at five percent. Is he even a right. factor in New Hampshire? Do you hear people talking about him, or even maybe even lamenting the fact that he's not going anywhere seemingly in New Hampshire? <laughs>
2: Yes, it's it's more it's more the latter, Um, you know, it's interesting talking to voters there, there still are a number of them that I've talked to that are sort of going back and forth between Haley and DeSantis because they have these fresh concerns about Haley that they're just hearing about for the first time. But he really just kind of abandoned this state after um, he was revamping his campaign. You know, there was all the turmoil in the super PAC last fall, and he basically stopped coming here is the way that people described it. Um, He went pretty much dark on the airways by November. Um, There was nothing from his allied groups either. So I've seen some stray like door hangers for DeSantis, (laughs) but he is really not a presence here. Um, and there are some voters that are, that are pretty bummed about that, that feel like he would have been um, you know, a stronger candidate than Haley. These are the sort of voters that want to move on from Trump. But they clearly see him going nowhere. And so what they would say to me is that they don't want to throw away their vote here.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question for you, Maven. I know you, you've, you're, you're there, you're covering the, the Republican primary. But a long time ago, well, last election cycle, New Hampshire was also the first primary uh, for Democrats. It isn't any longer. South Carolina is the first primary. I'm wondering, are you hearing any rumblings among among granite staters grumbling about the fact that the Democrats uh,
2: abandoned them? Absolutely. People are still very mad about that here. And um, there is a Biden write-in campaign that's going on. You know, he's not even on the ballot uh, on Tuesday. And so you've got others here like Dean Phillips who've been sort of running around and trying to um, embarrass Biden here. But, um, but what we're seeing happening is, you know, a lot of the independents that we were just talking about, the left-leaning ones who uh, might have passed their ballot in the Democratic primary, now see that as a complete a complete waste, um, and they're gonna play in the GOP primary. So that's creating some really Biden's absence here is creating some really interesting dynamics on the GOP side that could help Nikki Haley.
1: Interesting, very interesting. <laughs> Mae in that Washington Post national political reporter. Uh, coming to us from. Are you? You're not in Manchester. Which New New I'm, Hampshire town are I you in? I am in
2: Manchester. I am you in, are Manchester. in Manchester. <laughs>
1: um, After
2: driving through the snow earlier this week, all over the state. So, um,
1: well, a couple of things. One, thank you for coming on. Two, stay warm. And three, drive yeah. safely.
2: <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you so all right, much.
1: Babe, thank you so much. Um, time for the opinions roundtable. So let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find. Washington Post associate editor, Ruth Marcus, and Washington Post columnist, Hugh Hewitt. Ruth and Hugh, uh, welcome back to First Look. I think this might be my first time seeing you both since the new year. So, happy Happy new New year. Year. Um, Okay, so before we get into um, a potential Biden-Trump rematch in Hampshire and all of that, uh, can we talk real quickly about the, the funding deal that you race through the Senate, race through the House, signed into into law by the president which keeps the government open until March 1st and March 8th with this tiered situation. Um the reporting is that Speaker Johnson may or may not be in trouble. Punchbowl reports all the people all the republicans who voted against it and a lot of the, his entire leadership team Plus, a bunch of Republican committee chairs voted against it. Hugh, should Speaker Johnson be afraid for his hold on the gavel in the way that Speaker McCarthy had to be afraid days before he was um, removed? Yeah, for doing the
0: knucklehead caucus in the Republican Party. The knucklehead caucus numbers a dozen, and if the knuckleheads get together and want to screw up the House again. They will. They shot themselves in the foot, and the entire grand old party in the foot when they toppled Kevin McCarthy. No reason they wouldn't do it again. They're not the world's brightest people. <laughs> and
1: and <laughs> okay, knucklehead caucus. You you want to you want to gild that lily?
3: <laughs> no, I think this is the point when you're in a courtroom where you say no more questions and just step down. I can't. I cannot improve on knucklehead caucus, um, except to say that you know the very the sound of can kicking is becoming awfully familiar.
1: Um, well, let me put this question to you then, Ruth. The other situation that Speaker, Mc- uh, Speaker McCarthy, Speaker Johnson finds himself in, is that you've got um, a bipartisan group of senators uh, in, uh, in the Senate trying to hammer together an immigration deal that's tied to aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. You have Republicans who are out there saying, this is a great deal, we've got to get this done as means of trying to, I suppose, put pressure on House Republicans. And yet you've got Speaker Johnson saying, I don't care what comes out of the Senate, we're not doing it.
3: Well, I think the word knucklehead comes to mind on that. It is knucklehead, but also um, politically motivated. So this is an opportunity to get something done that, will be very painful to Democrats, will be extremely painful to immigration rights groups. Um, But that could be uh, a needed uh, change in the immigration rules and also um, a way to get this other important funding across the finish line. And House Republicans seem to be willing to um, look that gift horse in the whatever the phrase is, um, to reject that gift horse. And... Um, And, you know, are they doing it because they're purists and nothing will satisfy them? Or are they doing it because they want immigration as a political issue to exploit and not as um, an actual problem that they want to solve?
0: Hugh, I saw you. Okay, Uh,
3: go ahead. I
0: am an immigration moderate. I would like most of the between 12 and 20 million people who are here illegally to be regularized and allowed to work. But the Republicans want 900 miles of wall. And they will not settle for a deal in the house that does not include the construction authorization notwithstanding any other law and the funding for the construction of the wall they believe that the senate republic senate republicans are settling for far too less than what they ought to be getting in the deal for israel taiwan and ukrainian aid which i support but i believe the speaker is correct in saying no wall no deal we'll talk about it in the fall because the american people will not take another 8 million illegal entries over three years as they have under President Biden. So it's not enough. The changes that are being proposed are not even remotely close to a border fix.
3: Well, Um, I don't think your wall's gonna do the trick, but we can continue that offline.
1: Right, and also, um, we don't know the specifics of the Senate Senate proposal because it hasn't actually been released. So we're all just, oh, what? I do. I've
0: been talking to the senators. The wall's not in there.
1: Yeah. Interesting. All right, Hugh, I'm going to stick with you. Let me talk about what's going to happen in New Hampshire in, in four days. You had Governor DeSantis, um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, on your, on your radio show. Um, Hugh, what's his strategy in New Hampshire, um, especially when the latest poll has him at 5% and Trump at 50 percent.
0: I think Governor DeSantis would like every Governor DeSantis backer to vote for President Trump. I think he would like Ambassador Haley to be knocked out in New Hampshire. And I think she is if she doesn't win, because she's not going to win South Carolina. That's Trump country. And I think Governor DeSantis is, is down to like an NFL team. I will hang around this game until March and hope something changes. And on Tuesday night, when I think President Trump wins another 50 percent, like the Iowa Avalanche, they ought to have an Oscar award ceremony where he can thank Letitia James and he can thank Jack Smith and he can thank the Colorado Supreme Court and he can thank the Maine Secretary of State and he can thank Gene Carroll and the special prosecutor. I mean, there are so many people that helped Donald Trump get here, uh, but he's going to get there on Monday night, on Tuesday
1: night. Ruth?
3: Well... (laughs) Um, a piece piece of me I I agree with the bottom line he's going to get there on Tuesday night Uh, a piece of me really um, is jealous of Maeve doing the really hard but fun work and dangerous work of driving around the snow in New Hampshire and a piece of me thinks we already know the ending of this story there is no suspense here Uh, even if Nikki Haley were to pull out a victory in New Hampshire that would not that would be fun for us that would surprise us it would not change the outcome Donald Trump as Hugh said is going to be able to win in Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina he's going to wrap things up on Super Tuesday the the paradox of this election is that it's simultaneously the most I know we say this all the time but this one really is the most important election of our lifetime. And at least right now, kind of the most boring. We know who is going to be on the ticket for both parties in November.
0: Okay. Yes. It is boring, but with a great capacity for a wild card, right? There are wild cards all over. There are trap doors and shoots and ladders. I, I'm sure you remember shoots and ladders. Mm-hmm. It looks like Biden-Trump 2.0, but a lot of stuff can happen that makes oh, it something she- completely different.
3: It is not going to remain boring, but the primary phase of the election, and I'm sorry oh. to say this, it's probably not good for the news business. And with respect Agreed. to all my friends who have been trooping around in the cold, um, <laughs> we are in the boring phase right now, It's but it's going to be cliffhanging.
1: Uh, okay. I must be a super nerd because I don't find it boring at all. Uh, Hugh, uh, you, you recently had a column previewing this Boring potential, almost inevitable, boring rematch between Biden and Trump. Saying it would decide, it would be decided along three great divides. What are they?
0: Well, the biggest divide is whether or not we're going to defend the West. And I want—I think 10-7 changed everything about this election. The horrific nature, the barbarism, the depravity of Hamas, the ongoing war. I think it really reset the stakes of this very, very high. And I, I do believe that we're gonna get very quickly to the key question, who else is going to be in the Trump administration? I want I saw yesterday, Larry Kudlow began the stakes for stakes. This is how fast it's moving. Do we want Robert O'Brien to bring the uh, uh, Latter-day Saint vote in Arizona and Nevada? Or do we wanna have Mike Pompeo as the Secretary of Defense or Tom Cotton as a uh, Nixon 1952 or Mike Gallagher in Wisconsin? We've moved on already. We're so far ahead of the cycle So the great divides are going to be on national security. I think that's the most important one of them all. And then on whether or not the Department of Justice has
1: lost its way. Okay. Those were the three? Wait, national security, the Justice Department, and then what? I missed something. I can't remember either, Jonathan. (laughs) Okay, Hugh. Ruth, have at it.
3: Isn't that isn't that the oops moment? Wasn't it Rick Perry who had that oops moment? We right, all we yeah. all have them. I'll, I will be there shortly. Um, a few things to say. Um, one is um, I actually agree, but for a different reason. That October seventh was a potentially game changing event in this election to me for um, a very scary reason, which is that I worry a lot that President Biden's response. Um, to the horrific assault and uh, the aftermath of Israel, the steps Israel has taken to uh, respond and defend itself, um, is going to lose him uh, votes among younger voters and is gonna lose him votes in Michigan with a lot of Arab American voters. And I really worry that the Hamas attack in the end could help elect President Trump, which I think would be a disaster. Um, I also want to go back to—and then I'm going to forget something that Hugh said so I'm, that I wanted to respond to, so I'm going to have my oops moment, too. But I wanted to go back to the um, list of people that um, Oscar-nominated um, Trump should be thanking Tuesday night. I think it's still an open—he clearly is doing this very interesting turn what would be lemons for anybody else into lemonade for Trump strategy of making hay and revving up people with— the various obviously unfair um, and politicized and weaponized assaults on him. That's not what I think. Uh, And so he is using this court strategy. Um, I think there's an open question about whether that is going to work to his benefit in the end, whether it's gonna work to his benefit when we get to the general election campaign as opposed to uh, the romp he's having through the primary season. And,
0: I would add, though, Ruth, I think I've read that you agree with me that the 14th Amendment argument is silly. And Professor Mike McConnell, former 10th Circuit Justice and one of the smartest guys in America out at Stanford now, has written the complete rebuttal to the 14th Amendment argument used by the Colorado Supreme Court and the Maine secretary of state. I think that overreach, that attempt to deny the American people their right to elect their whoever they want is going to prove very dispositive in many people's minds about how unhinged the Trump hatred has become in this country. Jack Smith has some unusual theories. The Mar-a-Lago documents case is the strongest case. The other Mm -hmm. stuff, Leticia James, is kind of a sideshow. But the 14th Amendment was a bridge too far. I think you agreed with me on that, didn't you?
3: I I agree with you. I I do not think that it would be healthy for the country, healthy for democracy, to have Trump removed from the ballot by state officials or state judges or anybody else. I don't think it's gonna end up being a dispositive issue because I think the Supreme Court has wisely taken this up, has set it for argument February 8th, is going to decide it with dispatch, and I think potentially unanimously in Trump's favor. And I know this pains some of my friends on the left and I think they should, but you helped jog my um, leaky brain into what I want, the other thing I wanted to disagree with you about, Hugh, um, which is the misuse, I you, you said a word like that, um, of the Justice Department. I do not think um, that that is occurring, number one. Um, and I do not think, again, uh, you've acknowledged that the Mar-a-Lago case is a serious case. I agree with you on that, I would say, The January 6th case, the president's um, efforts to prevent a peaceful transfer of power and to undo the clear results of the election also make are very serious charges. They should be brought seriously. This is, he can say it as many times as he wants, and I know he's going to convince his voters, um, but this is a case of the Justice Department doing what it should be doing and not acting for political reasons.
1: You guys have had a, a big back and forth uh, but there's some things I need to point out. Um Hugh, your third your your third great divide was age. So <laughs> um Thank you. in in the in the Biden Trump rematch, the other thing is let's keep it we need to keep in mind a few things. A lot of these these challenges to Trump being on the ballot have been brought um, by Republic, Republican citizens. And let's also be clear that the, ba- the the challenge here is not for the general election ballot. It is for the state primary ballot, which is why you're seeing yeah, these that, challenges. That's
0: true. It's true, John. It's beside yeah, the point. I think it's going to be nine uh, zero. What My clear. objections to the Department of Justice, long what? ago when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was the uh, clerk to the special panel of D.C. Circuit judges that appointed independent counsels under the old law. And I've studied special counsels and independent counsels, as Ruth has, for a long time. The appointment of Jack Smith is very unusual, actually without precedent in my view. And the parallel course that Mr. Turr is taking with the president's uh, documents from his garage lead me to conclude there isn't one standard at work here. I'm very troubled by the politicization of the special counsel here. And I believe his, his argument in Mar-a-Lago is different. I haven't seen the defense, so I can't comment on the defense. That's an obstruction case. But he was not. Uh, Jack Smith did not charge the president with insurrection, which is, I think, what most people thought he was, but rather with the same kind of overreach that he did in the McDonald case. And I believe eventually the former president will be vindicated on that charge, too. Can we talk about
1: another case, um, the E. Jean Carroll case? Uh, you're, both, you're both lawyers. Uh, I am not. Um, can we talk about his antics in the courtroom and, and, and the tightrope you think the judge is walking here? Because all I know is this. If I had done even a millifraction of what Donald Trump did in the courtroom this week, I, I would have been thrown in jail after the first outburst. So w- I would love your thoughts on the antics and and what you think the judge should or shouldn't do. Ruth, you go first.
3: Uh, the judge, as as usual with Trump, he is saying um, the quiet part out loud. So the judge admonished him for making his kind of not very quiet commentary that the jury, people worried, could hear. Uh, but the judge said outside of the earshot of the jury, um, if you do this, I'm going to have to remove you from the court. I don't want to have to do that, though I'm sure you would love it. And Trump said, yes, I would love it. Um, he's trying to provoke this judge and every other judge that he has been before um, to do something that will make him look in the eyes of Hugh and others like even more of a martyr, even more of a victim, a victim of who, you know, Democratic appointed judges and and Democratic um district attorneys and everything else and so the judges judges are really in a difficult situation because the ordinary tools that they would use are not effective against Trump in fact they might be helpful to Trump and so i really don't think i have a very good solution for what a judge should do in this circumstance
1: yeah it's like he's stress testing this the stress testing the sy- the judicial system and um not clear the judicial system is going to um, withstand the stress. Um, Hugh, you were invoked, and also we've got less than a minute, so you get the last word. Okay. I'll stick to the point. Donald Trump is a media genius, and
0: every platform, whether it is a courtroom or a campaign rally or an interview on Fox or a debate, he knows better than his opponents how to manipulate and exploit that to message, and only when... Democrats realize, and judges realize, that he is a master of every media stage Well, they understand it's best not to put him on those stages if they don't want to lose the exchange. I think he did. I've been in a half dozen courtrooms in my life. I'm not a trial lawyer, so I'm not about to tell you what trial lawyers should do. I just, I believe that the former president will exploit successfully any stage on which he appears.
1: Yeah, any stage, any circumstances, as the the judicial system, the judges, everyone, uh, we're all in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Ruth Marcus, Hugh Hewitt, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
3: Thanks, you John,
1: too. Good to see you, Ruth.
0: Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.